Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. This is part two of a two-part episode. I highly encourage you to take a listen to last week's episode if you haven't already done so. This week, I am continuing the story of Navy veteran and spree killer Christopher Dorner. I left off last week after the murder of Michelle Kwan and her fiancé, Keith Lawrence, at the point where Dorner's Facebook manifesto had just been discovered. Now, let's keep digging. This two-part episode was researched and written by my listener and fan club member, Myrtle. The sources are identical to those listed in part one, so I will not list them here. It is safe to assume that after the discovery of Chris Dorner's 11,000-word manifesto, the LAPD was on edge. Who would be next and how could they protect their families? The LAPD quickly deployed 200 cops out on rotating protection details. Each target was assigned two uniformed cops who were on duty 24 hours a day. On Tuesday, February 5th, Dorner approached a dock worker at Point Loma Pier saying he was a soldier getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan and he wanted to go fishing in Mexico before he left. The dock worker kind of looked at him and told him he couldn't leave the harbor himself and didn't know of any boats that were available for him to hire. He questioned Dorner about being sure he wanted to go fishing. Didn't he want to spend his last night before going off to war with a girl or his family? Dorner insisted, no, 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 not really. I just, you know, I just want to go fishing. But he left the dock when he couldn't get a lift to Mexico. On Wednesday evening, Dorner headed to a yacht club in San Diego. He boarded a yacht that was owned by an 81-year-old man and his wife. The man's wife was in L.A. that day, and the elderly man was alone on the boat. He looked up to see Dorner holding a gun pointed at him and told the man he was going to take him to Mexico. As they prepared to push off, Dorner went to untie the yacht. He was apparently unfamiliar with launching boats from docks, and he threw the mooring rope into the water instead of onto the dock where anyone with even a little boating experience should know. Now, I don't know jack about boats, but he was in the Navy. What happened to all that Navy training, I ask? The rope drifted down into the water under the boat and became tangled in the propeller, causing the engine to shut down. Trying to get rid of him, the owner told Dorner to take his car. But Dorner didn't want to be on the streets where he could be seen. He took shoelaces out of the man's shoes and tied the man's hands and feet. He then took the man's cell phone and disappeared into the night. The man was finally able to free himself around 10 p.m. He then called the police and reported the near boat jacking. This man would later thank his lucky stars, then realizing he was in the presence of a man who had already committed a double homicide. But Dorner let the old man live. Just after midnight, now early morning on February 6th in Corona, California, Lee McDaniel, a repo man, was at a gas station filling up his truck for a night of picking up vehicles. 
He had seen on the news that the police were looking for Christopher Dorner. They had released a plate information on Dorner's Nissan Titan pickup truck and cited the color as blue. As McDaniel was getting ready to pull away, he noticed a gray Nissan Titan at the next pump over. He looked over and there was a man getting in it and the guy was pretty big. And immediately he recognized him as Christopher Dorner. Now, McDaniel pulled out and circled around so that he could get a better look and try to read the license plate number. Now, he had a laptop that was tied into a license plate database because remember, he was a repo man. He looked up the plate number the news said was on Dorner's truck. The picture that came up was the exact truck he had just seen parked next to him at the gas station. Turns out the police were reporting the wrong color and Dorner had switched out license plates. Just as he started to dial 911, he saw an LAPD police officer pull into the gas station. They were in Corona to protect one of Dorner's targets. McDaniel went over to the cops to report what he had seen. But Dorner had already left the parking lot as he drove past them and onto the ramp onto Interstate 15. The two LAPD officers took off following the truck, trying to confirm it was Dorner. They were following at what they thought was a safe distance, and they saw Dorner pull off the freeway onto an off-ramp. The officers followed, but Dorner was waiting for them in an ambush at the bottom of the off-ramp and opened fire on them with an assault rifle. The police officers tried to fire back with their handguns, but were too far away to be effective. And unfortunately, the patrol car's radiator was blown out, a tire was punctured, and a bullet that came through the windshield grazed one of the officers' head. Yikes! Dorner took off and the officers who were out of radio range to the LAPD dispatch had to use a bystander's cell phone to call in the information about the color of the truck, the new license plate number, and that shots had been fired with a high-powered rifle wounding one of the officers. In Riverside, an hour west of L.A. and 10 miles from the gas station in Corona, patrol officers Michael Crane and Andrew Takias, they set out on the graveyard shift in their police vehicle. The city's patrols were usually solo officers, but they were paired up while Crane finished training to Kias, nearing the end of the rookie's training period. It was around 1.30 a.m. when they were alerted on the radio that Dorner was potentially in their area. They were stopped at a red light with an older car next to them and across the intersection was a taxi. The taxi driver was looking at his GPS and not really paying attention to the light when a pickup truck pulled alongside him in the intersection rolled through. You know how you just kind of go with other cars when they move without looking at the light? I do it all the time. Well, the taxi cab driver released his brake instinctively when he kind of saw the other car going with his side peripheral view. But then the taxi cab driver looked up and saw that the red light was still there and he slammed his brakes. Now, the pickup truck continued through the red light. And as it passed the police car, the muzzle of a rifle appeared out of the driver's side window and the cabbie heard the sounds of shots as they were fired into the police car. Dorner fired at the two patrolmen across the hood of the car that was next to them waiting for the light. The man in the car, Jack Chilson, said when the gray truck drove past, the rifle was pointing out of the window, resting on the windowsill, and the driver was wearing safety glasses and looking at the police cruiser with a grin on his face. The shots eventually stopped and the truck pulled away. The cruiser started slowly moving into the intersection. I imagine after the chaos of the shots, it was quiet and eerie watching the cop car just move forward ever so slightly. The cab driver jumped out and ran to the police car, managing to shove the gear shift into park. 
Zacchaeus, the rookie cop, had been hit and he was in the driver's seat struggling to breathe. Crane had also been struck by a bullet and was in the passenger seat motionless. Zacchaeus could not move his arm, so the cab driver asked what he could do. Zacchaeus managed to say, the radio, the radio. The cabbie held the mic up to Zacchaeus's mouth and pressed the buttons like a madman. Zacchaeus looked over at Crane and struggled to tell the dispatcher that there was an officer down. The ambulance came and worked on Officer Crane for 30 minutes, but there was no hope for the 34-year-old former Marine and father of two. He was gone. Killed, murdered by not just a brother in arms, a former naval officer, but also a former police officer. Officer Takias survived the shooting, taking bullets in the back, legs, arms, and shoulder, and was rushed to the hospital where it was touch and go before he was finally stabilized. There were at least 13 .223 caliber bullet casings found at the scene, and it was determined that Dorner was using armor-piercing rounds in his assault rifles. Police throughout Southern California were already on high alert, but now Dorner just upped the ante, and the cops were like, Oh, hell no. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra Uniform Papa Papa dot com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. And if you thought this story was crazy, you just wait. Later that morning in Torrance, about 60 miles west of Riverside, a mother and daughter team, Emma Hernandez, who was 71 years old, and Margie Carranza, who was 46, well, they were on their newspaper delivery route in their blue Toyota Tacoma pickup. Emma sat in the back and passed papers to Margie, who was driving one-handed and tossing the papers out onto people's porches with her free hand. They always drove with their headlights on and hazard lights flashing. Along their route, unbeknownst to them, was the home of an LAPD captain who happened to be on Dorner's hit list. 
There was a police car parked on the block, but no one was in it. As the women drove past their windows down, they suddenly heard a burst of gunfire and bullets started ripping through their little blue truck. Margie, trying to save herself, yelled, I'm just the newspaper lady. I'm just the newspaper lady. But the bullets kept coming. When Emma tried to shield her daughter with her body, she was shot twice in the back. When the shooting finally stopped, the women were ordered out of their trucks with their hands up. They came out terrified. Eight police officers fired more than 100 rounds, 100 rounds into their blue Toyota. The blue Toyota occupied by two tiny Latino women, not the gray Nissan pickup truck that had a hulking African-American man inside. What the what? Now, people started emerging from their homes, wondering what happened. Bullets sprayed everywhere. There was bullets near cars, houses, trees, garages. Remember, 100 rounds had been fired. One neighbor noted that five rounds had landed in the entryway of his house. How exactly, though, did the cops get that so wrong? Thankfully, Emma would recover from her wounds and Margie was miraculously unharmed. I wonder what that lawsuit looked like on the back end. A few blocks away, David Perdue was looking forward to surfing the waves of Southern California. He was on his way to pick up a buddy when he was stopped and questioned by Torrance police, who turned him around and said, no, 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 turn around, go the other way. David was trying to be a good law abiding citizen. He was like, "Okay, cool, I'll just turn around. And as he was pulling away, a Torrance police car flew up and rammed the side of his black Honda Ridgeline pickup. The officer who rammed him then started shooting at David all Rambo style. Now, let me just tell you this. David Perdue is a white man who was medium height and build. Thankfully, the bullets missed him, but he was still ordered to the pavement at gunpoint. After recognizing, oh, shish kebabs, this isn't Dorner, which, by the way, the cops had already stopped him before some other cop drove into his car and opened fire. Well, once the Torrance police knew what they had done, they tried to explain to David, oh, my bad. Everyone's on high alert looking for some other dude who looks nothing like you. But, you know, since you're all responding to shots fired, you know, we're, you, we're sorry, my bad. But to wait, they were responding to shots fired by their actual police. Remember, the 100 rounds were just shot a few blocks over when the cops fired into a truck driven by two tiny Latina women. I literally cannot even right now with this story. This next part of the story takes us to Big Bear Lake, which is a vacation town. Really, there is no other reason to be in Big Bear Lake other than recreation, rest and relaxation. This is the first place where my husband and I vacationed together as a couple back in 2010. So to say that I was shocked to hear what happened there just a few years later is frightening. It was now Thursday morning, February 7th. In Big Bear Lake, east of Los Angeles, a snowplow driver clearing a forest service road found the smoldering remains of a Nissan Titan pickup. It looked like it had slid backwards down the road on the ice and gotten stuck. Deputies arrived and examined the wreck. They verified it was Dorner's truck by the VIN number. Inside the cab were the charred remains of two AR-15 assault rifles, part of a Glock handgun a survival knife, and what was left of a tent and camping stove. 
Hundreds of rounds of ammunition had exploded in the fire and were scattered around inside the truck and around the outside in the snow. Within hours of the truck's discovery, hundreds of law enforcement officers descended on the mountain, including SWAT units and helicopters. They set up roadblocks and checkpoints, and they placed a ski resort area on lockdown. A door-to-door search started. The area was full of vacation homes. Many of them were vacant and all had to be checked. Later in the day, a witness told police she had seen Dorner walking down the middle of the road. He was dressed in boots and camouflage and had something hidden under his jacket. A search was done with bloodhounds, but they could not pick up on Dorner's scent. Along with the police, the news media also flooded into Big Bear Lake, reporting on anything and everything they could get information on. This was such big news that Anderson Cooper himself from CNN reported that he had received a package from Dorner earlier in the week containing an LAPD coin and the coin had a bullet hole in the middle of it. The coin had been given to Dorner by the chief of police to honor his military service. The chief of police who gave him the coin was the same one who signed off on him getting kicked out of the LAPD. Talk about taking names. Dang, Dorner. Anderson Cooper interviewed the police chief and told him, quote, he clearly has a beef with you, end quote. (laughs) You think? It goes without saying that the police were scared. They were sending their loved ones to stay with friends and clearing their social media of pictures, hoping they wouldn't be identified by Dorner and made a target. Dorner's face was plastered on billboards, flyers, TV screens. It was all over the internet. All the photos showed his face with that big, welcoming smile, which is far from what you expect from a man who's completely lost it. In fact, when I first saw a picture of Dorner, I was like, wow, he's a handsome fella. Kind of reminds me of my back in the day crush, LL Cool J. But (laughs) if you know, you know. A headquarters was established at a secretive facility located in Norwalk, California, called the Joint Regional Intelligence Center, or JREC. JREC's primary function was to support large-scale multi-agency operations. I'm imagining they focus on events like terrorist attacks. And the powers that be were desperate to catch Dorner, so they placed Dorner's mother and sister under surveillance. They monitored his phone, his bank accounts, his credit cards, but there was no activity. Dorner had gone dark. Questions were asked as to what level training he had from the Navy. Was he trained in special tactics? Were they facing someone who was trained to evade and survive? But the answer was a big whopping nope. Regardless of what Dorner was going around telling people, the Navy verified that he had only gone through basic combat training, but did not validate that he was an expert marksman. More information revealed how bad Dorner was at claiming to be someone he wasn't. He had not been trained in special operations. He had actually failed flight school. He failed to get promoted and he had skipped his reserve drills on various occasions. His Navy records showed that he did not see any combat during his deployment. He was assigned to guard an oil rigger out at sea. To add to his dossier of shame, he barely made it through the police academy. And don't forget, he shot himself in the hand while he was there when clearing a freaking weapon. He had told friends that he relied on his mother for financial support. And let's not forget, he was in his 30s. And wait, remember, he couldn't even steal a boat from an 81-year-old man. They discovered that he had also misrepresented himself 
trying to impress women he wanted to date. Some of his claims were that he was a SWAT team member, an internal affairs investigator, and even tried to pass himself off as a combat veteran. And get this, y'all. One woman posted about Dorner to a website called DontDateHimGirl.com. I repeat, DontDateHimGirl.com. <laughs> this lady was like, ladies, 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 if y'all find yourself around this guy, run because he is paranoid that someone is out to get him. Now, Myrtle did a little more snooping for me, but it doesn't appear like this website is still up. Okay, back to Big Bear. Thursday turned to Friday with no sign of Dorner. LAPD's chief psychologist profiled that Dorner would be hiding in a cabin in Big Bear and not hiding outdoors in a snowbank. He didn't feel as though Dorner would go back down into the valley to seek out the targets that he had listed in his manifesto. The psychologist told the San Bernardino County SWAT team to expect booby traps and that Dorner would make it seem like he was surrendering just to draw them in adding that he thought Dorner expected to die. The psychologist warned police that calling Dorner a psychopath or mentally ill would only infuriate him more. He warned them to assume Dorner would fight to his last breath. And this psychologist couldn't have been more right. By Saturday morning, February 9th, many cabin owners at Big Bear Lake started to come back to town. There had been no sign of Dorner for two days since his burned out truck was found on the mountain. Tips were coming in by the hundreds claiming someone saw Dorner in San Bernardino holed up in an apartment with a large amount of guns. By Sunday, a $1 million reward was announced for the capture of Dorner. Thousands of bad tips continued to come in. There were claims of Dorner sightings as far away as Denver and Chicago. The weekend and Monday went by with no solid leads. And on Tuesday, February 12th, with the manhunt going into its second week, the Riverside Police Department held a memorial service for Officer Michael Crane. Meanwhile, back in Big Bear, helicopters performed infrared searches. Ground searches were not turning up any indication that Dorner was still in the area so some of the search teams started to leave Big Bear Lake. It was around noon on February 13th, and husband and wife retirees Jim and Karen Reynolds were busy at the resort they managed. The day Dorner's truck was discovered, they had gone around and checked the locks on all 13 cabins in the Big Bear Resort. Tuesday was their normal day to clean, and cabin 203 was first on their list. It had been unlocked earlier in the day for maintenance to do some repairs, but strangely, when they arrived to clean, the door was locked. They opened the door with the key and they were planning on dividing and conquering the cleaning, right? When all of a sudden, who shows up in the hallway of the cabin? Then none other than homeboy Christopher Dorner. But he wasn't there all Goldilocks style. Nope. He was pointing a gun at the couple and he meant business. Karen, having been glued to the news all weekend long, knew full well who he was immediately. And Jim figured they were as good as dead. Dorner's only course of action was to kill them. Turns out Dorner had been holed up in this particular cabin for several days. It was close to where he had abandoned his truck and it's likely he walked from his burned out car to this particular cabin. The door had actually been checked by deputies, but since they did not have authorization to enter the cabin, 
They checked for signs of forced entry and seeing none, they left. They thought it was secure. And the crazy part is that due to the cabin's proximity to the burned out truck, Dorner had front row seats to watch the investigation unfold. I mean, he was watching from the freaking window and probably watching the news at the same time. Now, Dorner saw his truck being towed away. He saw the hundreds of cops scour the area, and he even saw and heard the helicopters above. I wouldn't be surprised if this guy made himself some popcorn and ate it while laughing, realizing he was underneath their noses and they didn't even come close. When the Reynolds walked into the home and were held hostage by Dorner, Dorner told them he wasn't going to kill them. He assured them that he had let the 81-year-old man in San Diego live during his failed attempt to commandeer the yacht. I'm sure he didn't tell them that it was because he failed to secure the mooring rope correctly, but you know, whatever. When Dorner first appeared, Jim had managed to hide his cell phone between the cushions of the sofa. Jim thought it might be their only saving grace. Dorner zip-tied their wrist and took Karen's cell phone out of her pocket. Dorner asked if they had a vehicle and they pointed to a set of keys and said they had a Nissan Rogue parked at the office and they had just gassed it up. Dorner then took them back to the bedroom where he zip-tied their feet and searched them. Dorner found a chocolate bar in Jim's pocket and Dorner asked him if he was diabetic for some reason, to which Jim actually responded yes. Chris then stuffed washcloths into their mouths, covered their heads with pillowcases, and then tied electrical cord around their heads to hold the gags in place as he jerked their heads back. He told them to recite the alphabet. Karen, probably a true crime nerd like us, she made it sound like she couldn't talk, making Dorner think that the gag was tight enough. She got to the letter K and Dorner was like, okay, 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 just stop. Then Dorner walked off. And while Karen couldn't see anything, she heard what appeared to be sounds of Dorner packing things up. Just as she thought he was about to leave the house, he returned to the couple. He was confused. He had grabbed the car keys, but there were no keys on the actual keychain. The couple was somehow able to explain that it was a keyless car and all he needed was the key fob. Then, miraculously, Dorner was on his way. I'm sure that Karen and Jim listened as his footsteps got further and further away. And then they wiggled around enough to get the pillowcases off of each other's heads. And Karen managed to get to her feet, still zip tied, mind you. And she got to a knife that was left on the dresser. When Dorner first brought them into the bedroom, Jim thought they were going to be stabbed to death. But I guess it just wasn't their time. Karen got the handle of the knife in her teeth, but accidentally dropped it and kicked it behind the door. When all of a sudden she heard a noise, crap, she thought, it's Dorner, he's back. But after a minute or two, Karen managed to hop, feet still zip tied, down the hall to the living room. She tried to dial the landline, but couldn't do it with her hands behind her back. She then saw that Dorner had left her cell phone on the table. What? Karen managed to get the speaker on and dialed 911. She hurriedly told the dispatcher that Dorner had their car and that he was still in Big Bear Lake. By the time of Karen's 911 call, though, Dorner had a 30-minute head start. Police now knew that Dorner was in the Reynolds Nissan Rogue, and they were watching intensely for it. Four officers were staged at a checkpoint ready to deploy spike strips when they noticed Dorner in the Nissan following closely behind two school buses. Ah! It seemed like he was staying close to the buses to protect himself from hitting the spike strips. 
the officers raced to their cars and started chasing Dorner, but he somehow got away around the buses and lost the cops. The officers took a guess at what direction they thought he might have gone and ended up finding the Nissan crashed into a snowbank, airbags deployed and the windshield broken. But Dorner was nowhere near the car, but he left behind some pretty valuable items, including weapons, smoke grenades, tear gas, and a rifle that had the word vengeance painted on the stock. After he ditched the Nissan, Dorner spotted a silver Dodge Ram pickup being driven by a local Boy Scout camp leader named Rick H. He aimed his assault rifle at the man and told him, get out of the truck, adding that he didn't want to hurt him. Rick got out and Dorner got in. As he sped away, Rick dialed 911. Now, Dorner was again in a different vehicle and the word hadn't gotten out to all of the units. Most of the police were still looking for their first Nissan. Now, it didn't take long for him to pass some officers who recognized him driving the Dodge Ram. Dorner fired at the officers as he drove by. A game warden who was a former Marine took aim with a 308 assault rifle and fired 20 rounds at the truck as it disappeared around a corner on the curvy road. Officers pursued looking for Dorner in the stolen Ram pickup, but he had ditched the truck down an embankment behind a cabin on the road. The pursuing police officers passed right by it and didn't see it. Meanwhile, Dorner broke into the cabin and took up position at the window to begin his final assault against the police. Cops were spread out all over the road looking for Dorner and the truck. A San Bernardino Sheriff's detective, Alex Collins, he was on foot with another deputy, Jeremiah McKay. The pair was coming down the road, guns drawn as they walked toward the cabin. When suddenly, Collins saw a flash and, oh, he felt something. Almost felt like he had been punched in the face. But it wasn't a punch at all. Dorner had shot Collins in the face, other rounds hitting him in the leg, arm, and in the chest. Collins and McKay managed to take cover behind a truck, but it didn't provide much safety. Collins fought to stay alive. The bullet had hit him in the face. It had entered under his nose and traveled through his mouth, breaking his teeth, splitting his tongue in half, and exiting out of his jaw, destroying the bone. He was leaning over so the blood would pour out of his mouth and not into his throat, potentially choking him. He pulled out his cell phone from his chest pocket to call his wife and threw it down, seeing that it had been shot and was unusable. The saddest part is that he had barely returned to work after paternity leave following the birth of his son. His thoughts went to his older brothers, who were also San Bernardino sheriff deputies. He hoped they wouldn't try to do anything extreme to try to get to him, putting them all at risk. Dorner continued his vicious attack, shooting at them, trying to ricochet bullets off the ground under the truck in an attempt to continue hitting the two police officers. Next to Collins, Deputy McKay had taken up position and was radioing information to the helicopter above, letting them know which cabin the shots were coming from. For whatever reason, though, Deputy McKay moved from behind his cover just long enough for Dorner to get his crosshairs on him. Dorner then shot McKay, hitting him right above his ballistic shield. The bullet entered McKay's chest, killing him instantly. Deputy McKay was now the fourth life claimed by Christopher Dorner.
Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. At this point, the mission turned into a rescue mission. They needed to get Collins and McKay out of the kill zone. So deputies attempted the rescue by driving a truck in to grab the men. But in the fog of war, if you will, there was too much confusion and the truck pulled out without getting the men. But all was not in vain, as the police now knew where Dorner was hunkered down. Deputies now turned their attention to the cabin and they were unloading. This was a real showdown because Dorner continued to return fire. Dorner's fearlessness in the moment made it close to impossible for officers to continue their rescue mission, but they were ultimately successful when they used smoke grenades to enter and retrieve the downed officers. Sadly, as I mentioned earlier, McKay was gone, but Collins still had a chance and he was taken on a helicopter to a medical center in Loma Linda. At the hospital, they discovered that Collins' life had literally been saved by his cell phone. You see, a bullet had pierced his vest, but behind the vest, he had his cell phone and it literally saved his life. For some reason or another, he had the phone in his vest versus in his back pocket where he normally kept it. The area of Big Bear Lake was in San Bernardino County, so their sheriff's department had the lead on the chase and fight that was about to go down or that was actually still going down. This was an actual war zone. In the chaos to make matters worse, an LAPD SWAT team had commandeered an L.A. Fire Department rescue helicopter and landed on the mountain about a half mile from the cabin. The San Bernardino County Sheriff on scene, the commander, he wasn't aware that the LAPD was coming down and ordered them to stay up high and not get involved. The LAPD SWAT team actually caused a diversion that drew the attention of the San Bernardino Sheriff team from the cabin to the helicopter. Hundreds of police officers rushed toward Big Bear Lake, causing a traffic jam a mile long on the highway leading up to the town. The San Bernardino Police Department was the only agency that the local sheriff's office had asked to assist. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department is second in size only to the LAPD and has close to 1,700 deputies. More cops showing up really wasn't necessary. But I kind of get it. You, you train your entire life for a thing just like this. And when someone is out to get one of your own, you want to be tagged in like, please pick me, pick me. It was reported that the San Bernardino police chief saw some of the uninvited police officers 
at the end of the line of police cars with their M4 rifles out and point it toward the cabin. Mind you, these cops were about a mile away. The effective range of an M4 carbine is 500 meters, yet a mile is 1,609 meters long. What exactly were they aiming at then? Meanwhile, the San Bernardino Sheriff SWAT team, a team that actually had jurisdiction in this case, Well, they were trying to get a tactical tractor to the location of the war zone, but they couldn't get through the massive traffic jam of cop cars. So they had to unload the tractor from the trailer it was on and drive the tractor slowly toward the scene. Back at the cabin, officers created a perimeter around the outside of the cabin, cutting off any escape Dorner may have had. They got in contact with the cabin owner and learned there wasn't anyone living there and that the cabin had a basement. They were relieved that Dorner didn't have a hostage. They broadcast over the speaker in the SWAT tractor for Dorner to give up, but there was no response from the cabin. They shot tear gas canisters into the cabin, but still there was no sign of Dorner. Where the hell had he gone? Next, they drove the SWAT tractor closer to the cabin and used an extendable claw to literally rip a hole in the cabin wall. Dorner had pushed mattresses up against the wall to provide him protection. It was now four in the afternoon and all of a sudden green colored smoke started coming out from the cabin. This was a sign that Dorner was still alive because while the police were using smoke grenades, they were not green. The SWAT team stayed back. A decision was made to use hot gas canisters rather than tear gas as a tactic to drive him out of the cabin. The hot gas canisters were known to start fires and were printed with warnings that they were for outdoor use only. They didn't have much time because it was getting dark and they didn't care. What happened next may leave you wondering why the police didn't just wait it out. A little after 4 p.m., six hot gas canisters were deployed, but still no sign of Dorner. Soon, a seventh canister was deployed and this canister sparked and started a fire. Which, why anyone would start a fire in the California forest is mind-boggling to me. Yet, by 4.09 p.m., flames were visible and spreading, but still no sign of Dorner. Then, five minutes passed, eight minutes passed, ten minutes passed. Then, 11 minutes later, at 4.20 p.m., they heard a single gunshot. Shortly after that, the fire caused all of the live ammunition inside the cabin to explode, making it sound like a war zone all over again. Due to the live ammunition, the fire department was unable to get close to the cabin, and the decision was made to just let the fire die down. Thankfully, the fire didn't spread to other cabins or into the trees. The rounds of ammunition finally stopped exploding, and the fire died down, giving investigators a chance to look inside. The cabin had been completely annihilated, destroyed. There were no walls or floors. And as they investigated in the debris, they spotted a charred and unrecognizable body in the basement. A nine millimeter Glock was laying next to it. The fire burned so hot, the body was missing the legs from the shin down and both hands were burned away. It was later revealed a single bullet was shot through the temple of the head. Dorner's body was later identified using dental records. Ballistics would later match the gun found in the cabin as the same one that was used in the murders of Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence. An AR-15 recovered from the cabin was found to be a match to the rifle 
used to kill Officer Crane and Deputy McCain, as well as the wounding of Detective Collins and Officer Takias. Dorner's wallet was found almost intact in the fire, and it was intact because it was found under his body. Well, inside they made a terrifying discovery. They found a fake badge and an LAPD business card that had the names of two of the captains who were on his board of rights, listed with their names were their addresses and the names of their wives. And that is just terrifying. Christopher Jordan Dorner held Southern California hostage for more than a week. During that time, he took four lives and forever changed the lives of two others. Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence had just gotten engaged. Their whole lives were ahead of them. Officer Michael Crane was a former Marine, a husband and the father of two children. And Deputy Jeremiah McKay had a wife, a stepdaughter, and was excited to be a new father. His son was only four months old when he died. Officer Andrew Takias was hit by eight bullets when Dorner ambushed him. He never fully recovered physically or emotionally from his wounds and was unable to return to full-time duty. He worked for a few years in the police department doing admin work, but retired in 2017 at the early age of 35. Detective Alex Collins underwent multiple surgeries and brutal physical therapy to be able to return to duty, but overcame the odds and made it. What do you think, True Crime Army? Christopher Dorner was called racial slurs and punished for trying to stand up for himself starting at a young age, and it continued throughout his life. Was there systematic racism and discrimination in the LAPD? Sadly, there has been documented racism going back decades to the beating of Rodney King in the 1990s and even farther back in the 1950s when it was rampant in the force. Now, I cannot defend Christopher Dorner's actions but it just kind of gives you something to think about. Dorner wrote in his manifesto, quote, the question is, what would you do to clear your name? End quote. I don't know. This case is interesting because there are people on both sides of the fence, but murder is murder, period, dot. But some people believe that he was pushed over the edge. But I ask, do two wrongs really make a right? What made him really snap? Apparently, Dorner begged for reintegration training into the LAPD when he returned from his year-long deployment, but that was denied and he was hoisted into the force to work a beat. There are several Facebook pages dedicated to supporting Christopher Dorner and tens of thousands of supporters subscribe to them. According to an article in the LA Times, some LAPD employees anonymously said that the department was critical of people who reported misconduct calling the department's disciplinary system capricious and retaliatory towards the people who were reporting. And interestingly, two years after the events that occurred in Big Bear Lake, Sergeant Teresa Evans, well, she filed a lawsuit against the LAPD due to, you guessed it, discrimination. After Dorner filed the excessive force report against her, Sergeant Evans said that she was harassed by her supervisors and she alleges that they blocked a promotion and refused to let her work any overtime hours. In the lawsuit, Evan claims that there was even more retaliation against her by her supervisors for reporting the discrimination against her. Here are a few additional things that happened in the aftermath of Christopher Dorner's rampage throughout Southern California. 
Remember mother-daughter team Margie Carranza and Emma Hernandez who were delivering papers? Well, the LAPD officers shot more than 100 rounds at them, apparently mistaking these two petite Latina women in a blue Toyota for a hulking African-American man in a gray Nissan. When they finally stopped firing and ordered the women out, they recognized their mistake. But do you think they helped the women? Do they render aid? Maybe apologized? Nope. They didn't even attempt to speak Spanish or get someone who spoke Spanish to either of the women, neither of which spoke any English, and they had no idea what was happening. The only thing cops did was call for an ambulance. And would you like to know what happened to those officers who fired 100 plus rounds at these innocent women? Well, absolutely nothing. Not a single charge was filed. No fines, no suspensions, nothing. Excuse me, what? That's just insanity. But it wasn't completely a wash. Margie and Emma were awarded a $4.2 million settlement. But money will never return their sense of security. And do you guys remember David Perdue, the, the young white man driving a black Honda who was going surfing? Well, first, he was rammed by a police cruiser that hit his vehicle so hard it dislodged the back axle. Well, David immediately suffered a concussion and excruciating back pain but he was nonetheless subsequently fired at by a cop. Come on, man. Needless to say, David also sued and received a $1.8 million settlement. The manhunt for Christopher Dorner played out live on national TV and was a public relations nightmare. It seems as soon as information was released, it was being retracted by news outlets because of the massive volume of misinformation that was being shared online. Some of the lessons learned with social media from this incident were employed by the Boston Police Department following the Boston Marathon bombing. The Boston PD got ahead of the media by using social media early and attacked it head on. By the time it was all over, there were more people following the Boston PD on social media than all social media outlets combined, including the biggest news outlets like CNN. With so many different police agencies involved in trying to find Dorner, the problem with interagency communication was given attention to prevent it from happening again. Different agencies had different priorities and it caused roadblocks in coordinating finding where Dorner was going. Since then, police agencies have set up committees and met regularly to create plans to avoid repeating the problems they had in 2013 that include not responding to an emergency without clear permission and coordination from the department that has jurisdiction. All right, well, I hope this episode has shed a little light on a story that appears to be born in racial injustice and ended in nothing but senseless murder. True Crime Army, thank you for tuning in for yet another week of Military Murder. I love you all. Stay tuned for next week where I will bring you a brand new military murder case. For more military murder, follow me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. And don't forget to join the Facebook community at facebook.com slash groups slash military true crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions, researched and written by Myrtle and produced in collaboration with my boot camp and higher fan club members. The music was created by Ty Ops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week.
Let's work another podcast.